We will now have a reading from God's Word. Philippians 4, 10-13 I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, well, uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the elders here at Trailhead, and it is my privilege to have the opportunity to share with you this morning uh, on our final Sunday of 2020. So I hope you all had a a good holiday uh, this past weekend. I hope you had um, a Merry Christmas and and were able to, um, in a responsible way, spend some time with with some people that you loved. I know it's it's definitely a a different type of holiday season this year, um, but I hope that in spite of that you were still able to, to have a good time. Um, before we get into the sermon today, I wanted to let you know about something we have coming up. Um, we've been talking a lot about the Church Center app. Still definitely encourage you to download this app. Um, we use it for announcements. We use it for registering to attend services. And something coming up very soon um, that I'm going to tell you about right here that you're going to want to have the Church Center app in, a, in order to be able to, to do this as well. Um, we talk a lot here at Trailhead about community because community is one of our core values. It's a very integral part of our DNA. It's who we are as a church. We believe that that being a believer, being a follower of Jesus Christ is not just something you do individually. It's not just you believe in Jesus and then you go on your way and you figure it out by yourself. We believe that when you when you become a Christian, you are part of a community of believers. And one of the the chief ways that we push into that is through our community groups. Our community groups are the main method of discipleship uh, here at, at Trailhead, discipleship being how we all grow to be more like Christ. And so um, as we talk about community groups, we need to let you know this morning that this next season of community groups that, that we're going to be kicking off here in January, we're going to be doing something a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Um, and as we've looked at how things have been going, especially during this time, um, with social distancing and so many restrictions and just trying to navigate what that looks like for community. Some needs that have come up that have become apparent to us. Um, we think this might be a possible way for, uh, for people to get to know more people in our church community. Normally, when you join a community group, the way we've done it in the past, always a trailhead, is that community group is kind of your community group for life. But one of the things we've realized is in this time, when that is your almost your entire community, because so few people are able to come to the church and worship together through this, that that limits the number of people in Trailhead that you can get to know. So we would like to open up the opportunity for people who are in community groups, if they would like to, to switch community groups and be a part of a new group. Now, if you're in a group right now and you want to stay in the group you're in, that is absolutely fine. We're not going to require anyone to change groups. Okay, so here's how this is going to work. Um, if you're in a group, starting next week, we're going to push out information for how you can sign up to say that you want to stay in the group you're in if you, if you choose to do that. And you'll have the first opportunity to do that. Okay, but after we've had that time um, of signing up, of, of 
kind of recommitting to your group from now through May, so this kind of next semester of community groups. Um, we'll have about a week or a week and a half for that. After that, we're going to open it up, and people who are already in a group but would like to meet some new people, would like to move around, you'll have an opportunity to go and sign up to be in a different group. And if you're not in a group at all, now would be a perfect time to join in because with the groups kind of shuffling around, you won't feel like, and this was part of the, the, the thing we had heard in the past, sometimes we would have groups who had been together for a long time, they loved each other, they knew each other, but when somebody new tried to come in, it was really hard. It was hard to get in and get to know people because you felt like an outsider. So this will allow people to join groups for the first time and get to know people and not feel like they're intruding on something that's already settled and set. So we hope um, that some people will take advantage of this and will join in to groups. Uh, community groups will be starting January 24th. Uh, January 3rd is when we're going to be reaching out and contacting people who are currently in groups. So starting January 3rd, if you're in a group, be looking for that. And we'll ask you to let us know by January 9th if you're going to stay in the group you're in or if you're interested in moving into a different group. And then January 10th through the 17th, we'll have uh, through the church, oh, it disappeared on me, through the Church Center app, um, which you have all now downloaded, or you're going to download this week if you haven't already, you'll go through the Church Center app. There it is, it's back. Um, download it today, it says. So today, you're going to download the Church Center app, and then January 10th through the 17th, you can go in and sign up um, to be in a community group. Okay? Um, this is, I almost did this, this is the teacher part of me. I almost said, anybody have any questions? We can't do that right now. Um, so if you have any questions, um, I'd be happy to answer your questions, or Dan Free would really love to answer your questions. And you can reach out to him at dfree at trailheadonline.org, dfree at trailheadonline.org. Dan can answer any more questions you have about community groups. All right? All right, awesome. Hey, let's look at Philippians together today. Um, and we're going to talk about a secret... Everybody loves secrets, don't they? There's just something in you when you hear the word, there's a secret. You go, ooh, a secret. Like ever since you were a kid, right? When you're a kid and somebody says, I know a secret, you get like you just that feeling. Of, I mean, the first feeling is like jealousy. Like, you know a secret? I want to know a secret. How did you get to hear the secret? And I didn't get it right. Like, but then there's also like that excitement, that suspense of what's the secret? I want to hear the secret. It doesn't go away either. When you become an adult, everybody, I mean, look at, look at marketing. How many things are sold to us as secrets, right? The secret to whatever. It's on like every magazine cover. Ten secrets to, right? There was a book a couple, like a decade ago that was like one of the best sellers of the year that was just called The Secret, right? And if you, I mean, if you want to sell anything, like how many secret recipes are there, right? How much secret sauce? Look, it's Thousand Island dressing, but it's called secret sauce. And so we get excited because we like secrets. And Paul, in our passage today, says in verse 12 that I have learned the secret. And and here's the deal. And this is why I actually get kind of um, excited myself because the secret he says he's learned in this passage is the secret of contentment. And I don't know about you, but contentment is something that to me feels incredibly elusive. Like, I, I want to know the secret of contentment. Because I feel in my heart, and maybe you do too, maybe not, but I feel very often, and especially now, I feel like everything is magnified right now, everything is amplified right now, I feel so much restlessness. So much of a sense of there's got to be something different. There's got to be something more. 
Something needs to change. Something needs to be, there has to be more to this, more to life, more to, and I don't know what the restlessness is for you, more to your career, more to your family, more to relationships, more financially, whatever it is, there's just, there's got to be something more, right? And the idea of contentment sounds incredible. Because that restlessness I feel in my heart, that desire constantly for change, for an upgrade, for something better, new, different, it's disquieting. It's, it's not fun. It constantly makes me feel on edge. And if I could just be content, if I could just feel like things are set, that I'm secure, that I'm comfortable, that I'm safe, that I'm happy, that I'm satisfied, life would be so much better. And so here's Paul in Philippians saying, I have learned the secret of being content. And so automatically my antenna go up. I want to know what is the secret? What is this thing that I have missed? What is this thing that somebody else knows and maybe everybody else knows, but I don't know it. What's the secret? But here's the irony. And I, I, I just find this incredibly ironic. The secret that Paul is referencing in verse 12 leads into Philippians 4.13. And Philippians 4.13 is one of the most famous, most well-known verses in the entire Bible. Now, if you're not, like, if you, if you didn't, like, grow up in church and if, if kind of the whole Christian subculture thing is new to you, that might not be true. But for, for people who have been around church for a long time, Philippians 4.13 is like this verse that you see everywhere. It's, it's, it's on posters. It's on, um, I've seen it on sports gear a lot. This is like the key sports verse, right? This is one of, so how is it possible that the secret, the secret that I want to know, the secret you want to know, is something that we've all heard before. And yet, if that's the secret to contentment, then why aren't we all content? What are we missing? That's what I want to look at today. Have we missed this secret? Or have we misunderstood what Paul is saying in this verse that many of us, maybe not everybody obviously, but, but many of us have heard many, many times before? What is it? So I want to look at this passage together. And, and I want to back up a little bit because I think part of the, the misunderstanding that we have with that particular verse is the context of the whole passage. So, so we're going to back up a little bit and see if we can figure out what Paul's talking about here. What is this secret he's alluding to? And is it something? Like, like push aside all the kind of like marketing, you know, humorous kind of like ooh, big secret thing. Is there something here? that could actually help us to learn what it means to be content. Let's look at Philippians 4. In verse 10 and 11, just to set the context of what's going on here, Paul is writing um, what we call the book of Philippians is a letter, and he's writing it to a church in the city of Philippi, and he's writing it from prison. Paul's in prison when he writes this letter. And he says this, I rejoice, in verse 10, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be, here's the word, content. Here's what's going on. So Paul is in prison, and the the church from Philippi, the Philippians, had sent him a gift. 
some fi- we assume um, from the way it's written, and it sounds very clearly like they sent him some financial um, support while he's in prison. They reached out to him to try to meet his physical needs while he's there in prison and he's struggling. And he says to them here, look, I appreciate that so much. I'm so thankful for your gift, but I want you to understand why I'm thankful. I'm thankful not because I really needed that gift. It was nice. It was beautiful. I'm thankful because it showed me how much you love me. And the key to the gift they're sending him, what he's thankful for is not because he was so desperately, I'm going to fail, I can't make it unless I get this. What he's saying is, it's just good to know that you care. It's just so good to know that you love me. The gift itself is great. And he says, I'm not putting the gift down, but here's the thing. I'm okay if I get no gifts from anybody because I've learned to be content. So what is contentment? How can he be in prison and be saying, I don't need anything. I'm content. When we think about contentment, when I think about contentment, I would define contentment, most people define contentment this way. To be content is to have enough to be satisfied. If I have enough of whatever, then I'm satisfied. If I have enough money, if I have enough stuff, if I have enough relationship, if I have enough affection from other people, if I have enough respect, whatever it is, that thing that I really want, if I have enough of it, then I can be content. That's generally how we define contentment. But Paul here is saying that he's content. I look at verse 12. I know how to be, this is, I've, I've learned verse 11 how to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned, here's the word, the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying that he's content whether he has plenty or whether he has nothing at all. So this is totally counterintuitive. How can he be content without having enough? If contentment is having enough to be satisfied, Paul's saying he can be content when he has nothing. What, how does that work? Again, what's this secret he's talking about? Because I get restless, I feel like I need more. And I will be content when I get enough. But he's saying, I don't need to have enough. I'm already content. How does that work? I think to understand what he's talking about in verse 12 when he says, I've learned the secret, I think it's really, really important that we understand in verse 13. Here's that verse, and you, you may have heard this verse before because it's a fairly well-known verse. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's what I think we have to understand. We have to understand what all things means in this verse. Okay, Because... Most of the time when we hear all things, we think of anything I want. And so we would translate this verse, I can do anything I want to do through him who strengthens me. And so this verse fits really well with a kind of a success-driven, goal-oriented kind of a culture. Because if this verse means I can do whatever I want through him who strengthens me, then what I see is, whatever my goal is, whatever I want, whatever I need to achieve, whatever I think will bring me contentment, if I want to have enough, I can get enough, I can do it through Christ who gives me the strength. I need the strength, and he'll give me the strength, and I can go out and do it, whatever it is that I want. 
And so if it's, I want to win a game, I want to, I want to excel in a sport, or, or if it's, I want to be better in my career, if I want to advance up the corporate ladder, if, if I want to have stronger relationships, if I want to be in a relationship, if I want financial success or financial peace or whatever it is that I want, I can do it because Jesus will give me the strength to do it. But that is not what Paul is saying. Because again, the context here is totally different. In verse 12, Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. The all things is all the circumstances he's talking about. In verse 12, what Paul is saying in this verse is that I can face all circumstances through Christ. All things is not anything I want to do. All things is all things that happen to me. All places that I find myself. All situations that I'm involved in. And whether it's plenty or it's not very much, whether it's what I would classify as enough or whether it's nothing at all. In all of those things, Paul is saying, I can find strength, I can find enough strength to face those circumstances. Paul says, I can do all things, I can face all circumstances through him, Christ, who gives me strength. The secret to finding contentment is not about getting whatever I want. It's about being content in any and every circumstance regardless of whether it's what I think I want or not. And I want you to look at this again because this is a weird twist too. Again, when I think about contentment, I think about contentment meaning I need to have enough to make me satisfied. Look what Paul says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can meet all those circumstances through the one who gives me strength. Hey, why would Paul need strength to face plenty? Why does Paul need strength to have abundance? Why does he need a secret to be content when he has everything he needs? Don't we need contentment when we don't have enough? How is it possible for Paul, or why does Paul even need to talk about finding or learning the secret to being content when he already has enough? Let me ask you a question. Have you ever gotten everything you wanted? Was it ever enough? Um, I'm, I've been fighting as I prepared this sermon and Christmas just ended and so I've been fighting really hard against putting in but I'm going to say it anyway you know on Christmas day when you were a kid and you got the present that you'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for and it's the thing you would wanted above all other gifts and then like on December 26th it was no longer enough have you ever felt that did you ever feel that way I know I'm talking mostly to sophisticated adults, so that seems very foreign and long ago to you. 
But there was that thing, you just reach way back in your memory. There was that time when you were a kid when you knew if you had that thing, if you got that gift, it was going to be enough and you got it. Look here, okay. Let me, I'll, I'll grow it up a little bit. When I, so, it was, I'll just make it personal. Maybe this has never happened to any of you, so I'll just talk about myself. I started out as a teacher, um, and I was teaching freshmen, um, high school freshman English. But I thought there's got to be more to this, and so I worked really hard and, and was able to move from teaching because it wasn't quite enough, but I got to teach honors level classes, and then that was a lot better, and so I should have been satisfied, but it wasn't quite enough. And so I was able to move beyond teaching just honors to teaching AP, but that wasn't quite enough either. And so it's like, I need to change something here. And I moved from teaching those upper level classes. I actually switched to teaching middle school because I thought, well, maybe that will be enough, right? And so I switched. And then after about three years of that, actually, after about six months of that, I, I kept teaching middle school for three years. But after about six months, I realized it wasn't going to be enough either. And so I started looking for something else because I could never be satisfied. And I moved from from teaching um, in a school setting to, to going on staff at a church. And I thought, this will bring me success. This will bring me fulfillment. I'll be satisfied. And I was on staff at this church for probably close to about five months before I realized this isn't going to work either. It's not enough. And I started feeling like this pull. Maybe I'm going to do something different. I have to go, I'm going to go plant my own church. I'll go start a church. And on and on and on it goes. Throughout my life of saying like, here's where I am. And I, but I want to go here. And I get there, and what happens as soon as I get there? Okay, now what? And I want to go somewhere else. Okay, I'm there now, so now what? And where am I going to go next? Maybe this is just me. But I'll bet some of you can, can connect with this. That feeling of seeing a goal, and saying if I could just reach that goal, if I could just get there, then I'm going to be satisfied then I'll have enough. I think there's actually a special kind of discontentment that comes with getting what you wished for. When Paul's talking about having not enough, having plenty, I think most of us can understand and recognize and expect to feel discontent when we're struggling, when we don't have whatever. What really surprises us and what can really throw us for a loop is that feeling of discontentment when we do have what we thought was going to fulfill us. So here's where we start. Paul's secret of being content really starts with this. We have to understand that enough is never enough. And as long as we pin our hopes on contentment, on achieving or gaining or reaching something, we're never going to be content. Because enough will never be enough. Now, and we'll get to this here in a minute, I'm not saying we should not strive for anything. And I'm not saying that having goals is a bad thing. We'll get to that in just a minute. But, If we believe that changing our circumstances will bring us lasting satisfaction, we will never have lasting satisfaction. Because the problem in our lives is not our circumstances. The problem is our perception of our circumstances. 
The problem in your life is not what you have. It's not how much you have. It's how you view what you have, how much you have, where you are, what your role is, your title, your job. It's your view of that that creates your discontentment. Now again, I'm not talking about denying your life situation, okay? The goal to finding contentment is not living in a fantasy world where you imagine you're someone else, somewhere else, and what's real is not real, okay? What Paul is saying is that he looked at his circumstances regardless of what they were. Whether he was in prison or not, whether he was wealthy or not, He looked at all those circumstances through the lens of the gospel. And his unity with Jesus through the gospel allowed him to have strength in any circumstances. And as he faced those different circumstances, the circumstances didn't always change, but his perception of them did. I want to show you what I mean by this. I need you to bear with me, okay? This is going to feel like going off a little bit in a different direction, but stick with me. Because um, like I said, I'm an English teacher. And so um, when, I, when I teach English, this is, this is something, if you are an English teacher, you've seen this before. If you are a student, you've probably seen this before. You thought you would never see this again. And so I apologize, but um, I think it's actually really awesome. This is what we call a plot chart, okay? So teachers of the world... Yay, a plot chart is so cool. Because this is what every story, this every story you've ever read kind of fits into this plot chart, or, or it should, or if it's good. And so what this is, this is the way basically most stories work. You start with exposition, which is the background information. You get to know the characters and the plot, or the, excuse me, the characters and the setting and, and kind of the background information you need to know. And then we introduce a conflict. There's something goes wrong. In every good story, there's some kind of conflict. And then it's drawn like a mountain because... Uh, you know, exposition, everything's going along fine, and then there's this, this conflict happens, and then the action starts. We call it the rising action as the characters in the story try to resolve the conflict. And they keep trying different things, and every time they think they're going to solve the conflict, then, then complications arise, and so then everything kind of ratchets up. It gets more intense and more intense as they try different things to try to solve the conflict. Ultimately, all leading to this high point, which we call the climax, which is the moment when something really big happens. And in that moment, that something really big resolves the conflict. It puts things back, or at least sets things in motion to put things back. It's the big, huge moment that sets everything right, or starts the process of setting everything right. And then we call this the falling action. And in the falling action, things start to click into place. Things resolve themselves. There might still be some tension and some some minor conflicts, but everything ever since the climax is falling into place. And then we get to this place of resolution. And, and you see, again, it's in the chart, it's flat because in the resolution, things have been set right again. So you have exposition, resolution are kind of on the same plane as things have been set right again. Okay? You're like, why are you talking about this? We're actually, kids watching are like, we're on Christmas break. Stop it. Just stop. But, but here's the thing about this. And this is what I think is so cool. And you're going to say, that's not cool. You're an English teacher. That's not cool at all. But I think it's cool because what I saw, somebody pointed this out to me once before, that the reason this is the plot of stories, the reason we read stories and connect with stories is because this is the plot. This is the way, this is the world. This is the story of the entire universe. 
And so if you can go to the next slide, let me show you what this looks like in, in life, in the story of the universe. And, and, and scripture lays this out for us. It starts with the exposition, which is creation. God makes everything. And when God creates everything, he creates it perfect. And the word, the, the, the Hebrew word for this is shalom, which we think of as meaning peace. But it's not just peace as in there's no conflict, although conflict, peace, right? But it also just means everything's working together. In fact, a really good word for us to think of when you think of shalom would be contentment. At the beginning, God makes the world and everybody's content. Everybody has enough. And everything in the world is exactly the way it's supposed to be. But then there is conflict because somebody comes in from the outside and, and the shalom, the enough that everybody has, suddenly is, is told to be, they're told that it's not enough. They're told that there's something more. That the enough you have is not good enough. You could have something more. And so our original parents, the first humans who were living with this shalom, they, they sin. And so the conflict is introduced when they sin, shalom, this peace, this contentment is broken. And the world is broken. And everything's shattered. And, and like in any story, from that point on, everything else is an attempt to put things back to the way they should have been. To resolve the conflict. Now in any story, you have to have a hero. Right? A protagonist. And the hero in this story is not humans. They're the ones who, who broke everything. But the hero in this story is God. But here's the big difference, and I don't want to get too complicated because, again, it's not English class, I know. The big difference in this story and the typical plot is that in the typical plot, the hero keeps trying to fix things, but complications keep getting in the way. The hero keeps failing as he tries to fix things, he or she tries to fix things. In our story, God makes a promise that he's going to fix things. And then the humans keep messing it up. See, God makes a covenant. He makes promises that he's going to fix things. And the people keep saying, um, I don't like the way you're trying to fix things. Let me try to fix things myself. And they keep doing all these things to, again, try to find shalom, to try to find contentment, to be satisfied but it's not in with God's plan. And so it just keeps making things harder on them because they're trying to change their circumstances. They're trying to find contentment apart from the only one who can actually bring them contentment. And this builds and builds. And if you look in your Bible, if you look at a Bible, this is all what we call the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. It's the first like two-thirds plus of the Bible. And then it builds and builds and builds until it gets to this part, the climax. And the climax in Scripture and the climax in the whole world is Jesus. And Jesus dies and he comes back to life. And in doing so, he brings redemption. Because everything that was broken, when Jesus dies, he takes all our sins, all the brokenness, all of our poor attempts to set things right, he takes it all on himself and he dies and all of it dies with him. And then he comes back to life and is able then because he has defeated it. He, he killed it when he died and he comes back to life and now he's won and now he's able to put it all back together. And he's won the victory in his resurrection. 
And now we, who have been fighting and fighting and fighting to try to put things back together, we have now the opportunity to have things put back together by Him. Because He's the winner. He's the hero. And in doing that, we have this opportunity to know Him, to trust in what He did. And all we have to do is trust in what He did to have things put back right. But the story's not over yet. Because there's this time, and I've called it the mission here, it's the falling action, it's this time now where things are being put back together, but they're not quite all put back together yet. And you see this, you look at the world around you and you see it's not back together. It's not perfectly peaceful. You're not perfectly content. I'm not perfectly content. The world is not perfectly content. Shalom, peace, unity has not been fully restored. It is being restored and it will be completely and totally restored one day. And it will be returned to that same state of peace And we all have the promise of, if we're trusting in Jesus, if we're with him, we have the promise of that contentment someday. But right now we live here. We live in this time, the falling action. The climax has happened. Jesus has come. He's put things right, but he's still putting things right. And in that time in between, we struggle. We struggle because we look at the world and we see it should be like this. And it's not quite like that, like it should be. And we keep wanting to do what has been going on for centuries and centuries and centuries of trying to put things right ourselves, even though it's already been solved, even though it's already been fixed. So, I love this. I just, I didn't make this up. Okay. This isn't original to me. This is literally the story of the Bible. And lots of other people have pointed this out, but I just love the way it lays over top of, and again, as an English teacher, and, and so I have advantage of being an English teacher at a Christian school. So I show, I do this, I show my English classes this all the time because I think it's such a beautiful picture of how and why. I mean, to me, there's this sense of this is like, to me, part of the proof of God's existence, the way we resonate with every single story is because every single story is a is like an image or, or a, a shadow of the real story, the big story. To me, that's so amazing and so beautiful. And so I'm talking about this one day in 11th grade English class, um, American literature class, and I lay this whole thing out. And I'm showing them, and this is the way it is, and every story we've ever read is really this, and it's like Great Gatsby, and see how the green light, and that's all this, and if you've ever read, okay, um, To Kill a Mockingbird, and it's this, and it's here all, and I'm going through all this, and I think I'm just killing it, right, because I'm like master teacher today, I got this, and everybody's in awe of it, I'm sure of it, and they're all just kind of sitting there, and I go through this whole thing, and I think I've just like, oh, I've just nailed it, this is so awesome, and this girl raises her hand, and she goes, okay, so I have this question it's kind of a it's kind of a doubting question is that okay <laughs> I'm like sure what's your question she goes so like all that what if it's not real and like what if there's no god 
That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, really, that is the question about all of this. Because, I mean, to me, and again, you might think this is the most, like, you were a math major, and so you're like, I don't care about this. But to me, this is like just so beautiful and so amazing and like so proof of God being real and being real in our lives. But if it's not true, then it kind of has no meaning at all, right? I mean, if it's not true, then it's just like any other plot to any other story. And if it's not true, then it has as much value as The Great Gatsby, which is a lot of value. I'm just going to say I love The Great Gatsby. But, but to me, if this is true, it's totally different. If it's not real, then there's not much purpose behind it. If it's not real, if this didn't really happen, and this was my answer to her, and this is kind of where I land on this. This is everything right here. If this is true, if this really happened, then the rest of this, by extension, because Jesus, if Jesus really died and rose again, then we can believe what he says is true is true, right? If somebody dies and then comes back to life, I tend to believe what that person has to say, especially if he told us he was going to do it and then he does it. I'm like, okay, I, I think you're believable. So if this is real, then the rest of this, by extension, must be true. But if it's not true, then none of the rest of this is true. And if none of the rest of this is true, then we still have a problem. Because nobody says, I don't believe in Jesus, but I believe the world is perfect. Like your problems with discontentment don't go away if Jesus isn't real. If the gospel's not true, you're not suddenly happy and satisfied. It just means this. If, if this part's not real, there's no climax, there's no resolution, then we're still just here in this rising action. There's still no shalom. We just got to figure out how to do it on our own. If this isn't real, if Jesus isn't the hero of the story, then you have to be the hero of your own story. And if you're the hero of your own story, then you have to achieve and accomplish redemption on your own. If this isn't true, you have to figure out how to put back together everything that's been broken. Let me bring this back to our passage here. What Paul is saying is that because this is real, you don't have to try to fix what's broken. The secret that Paul's talking about, the secret to contentment, That I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Is this right here. Jesus has put and is putting everything back together. And contentment is coming. And if this is true, then I cannot think of anything else in the world that I would rather invest my life in than this story. I cannot think of anything else I would rather work harder for than being a part of this story. And the beautiful thing about this story is I'm not the hero. And I don't have to work, 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 work to make things right. 
It's already been set right. And if I believe that, if I trust in that, and then I realize I'm being invited into this story, then in any circumstances, whether I have a lot or a little, I can see that I'm a part of something so much greater. Something so much bigger than my circumstances. The secret to contentment is not to have enough to be satisfied. The secret to contentment is to know the one who is enough and to be satisfied in him. Knowing Jesus allows us to have contentment. Knowing Jesus allows us to be content that he is restoring shalom. And even as we struggle, and we do, we struggle because we know that things are not as they should be. And we feel it in our own lives. I still feel in my life things are not as they should be. And even as I work, even when I believe that this is true and I'm a part of the story and I'm working to be part of the story, even then I can be content to know that He, that Jesus is working all things. In all circumstances, in all events, in all situations. So what does it look like to join into this story? What does it look like to be a part of this flow? That's what we're going to talk about next week. So I hope you either tune in next week or come back next week and be a part of it because I really want to unpack what that means to join into the story. For now, for today, for this week, here's what we need to remember. Jesus is the strength that we need to be content in any circumstances. Jesus is the secret. Trusting in him, believing in him, believing in his death and resurrection, believing that he will put things right, even when we don't see it, and knowing that it's not on us. And all of our attempts in vain to put things back together, they'll always fail, but Jesus will never fail. Trust in that. That's the secret. Let's pray. So we pray and then we're going to move into a time of communion together. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We're so thankful for you. We're so thankful for who you are, for what you've done. God, on our own, in our own lives, all of our attempts to try to find satisfaction, all of our attempts to put things to the way we believe they should be, they always fall so far short. And yet you, in your goodness and in your love, you never abandon us. As much as we push away from you, you continually pull us toward you in your grace and in your love. God, help us to see the world through the perspective of your love. Help us to to trust in you and in what you are doing in this world. And to find contentment in that. In the name of your beautiful Son, Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.